I, I know for a fact if, it, if I didn't have my kids, then I wouldn't, I probably wouldn't be here right now, but that's, that was my joys, my happy right there. Mm-hmm. And when my ex had them, that was my lows of lows. Welcome to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Our mission is to help veterans and their family members make the transition from the military to civilian life and culture. As best we can, we avoid stigmatizing names and terms. We feature conversations with those who have encountered unexpected reactions in their journey, including such things as nightmares, rage, and isolation. Veterans and family members in our segments share experiences that make them uniquely qualified to join the quest to identify, understand, and resolve these enormous life challenges. Stigma-Free Vet Zone is brought to you by the Orban Foundation for Veterans. Learn more by visiting Orban Foundation at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. Please consider donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. The Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Thank you for choosing to make this journey with us. Here is today's segment. Hi, thank you so much for joining us today on Stigma-Free Vet Zone. This is Aaron Schaffnagel. Today we're talking with Sergeant Dave Arnsdorf of the United States Marine Corps. Uh, Sergeant Arnsdorf served from 2001 to 2009 with three tours to Iraq and now um, works for UPS and he's here to talk with us. Thanks for joining us, Dave. How are you today? Oh, I'm just doing fine and dandy. So tell us a little bit about why you joined the Marine Corps and kind of what made you want to enlist in the first place. Uh, I've always, even from a young age, I was always gr- dressing up as anything in the military for Halloween always playing guns outside with basically myself because my older brother never wanted to do that. I was always fascinated with the military, sitting on my dad's knee and getting told Navy stories. So so your dad was in the Navy? Yep. He was a welder in Vietnam. Okay, so there's a little bit, of, carriers. little bit of family history and, and tradition and in going into the service. Oh, yeah. I'm the only Marine, though. Got an Air Force, got Army, got Navy, and I guess I might as well complete it and be in the Marine. Strike your own chord, though, and get a different branch in the in the mix. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Got to branch out. Family tree goes straight up if you don't. So how old were, were you when you joined? Did you join out of high school? Did you go to college? Tell us I a little signed, bit about that. I signed up my sophomore year in high school. So you were really young. Yep. That's like under the age of 18, needed parental consent. Oh, yeah. Hadn't even gone to prom yet. I'm not a dancer. I don't prom. I'm going to refrain from comments because I know you personally. That's because you saw me at the ball. So I kind of feel like I should share a little bit of that with our listeners. So Sergeant Arnsdorf was actually one of my first platoon sergeants when I checked into Rock Island uh, Arsenal Unit, uh, GSM company from the Marines. So we do have a little bit of back history. So you might hear a few side stories coming on with his story just because of our, our relationship as friends. Um, all true. They are. They are. 
This is awesome. Um, okay. For later in life. So tell us a little bit about your service. Um, obviously you went to boot camp in California. So you went to yep. MCRD San Diego and then Camp Pendleton as well. Now, what was your MOS? I was 3522. I was a rebuild mechanic. And after I completed that from uh, Camp Johnson down North Carolina, came home and I actually went back to school to be a diesel mechanic for any civilian mechanic. So I actually ex- kept going on with my education. Okay. So the Marine Corps kind of gave you a boost in that. So you, you were a mechanic for the Marines. Um, and a 3522, correct me if I'm wrong, is not a basic mechanic. That's a more advanced like, right. rebuilding transmissions type stuff. Trainees, engines, differentials, geared hubs. So a wrench yeah. turner, but, but a more technical specialized one. Right. And then you went to school on the civilian side as soon as you came home from training because you were reserves. Right. And then became a diesel mechanic. And when did you find out that you were first deploying? Like, how did that go? Were you in school? Were you out of school? What was that like? I I was just getting ready for school when our our unit first got deployed that I tried to get onto but got denied because I was there too young too little i wasn't there long enough they wanted to send the guys that have been at the company for years upon years and then i got to my last 30 days in school all i had to do was stay busy for 30 days and i'd pass but then i found out i was getting deployed and I ended up having to come back just to finish my 30 days because I already, I already was top of the class and I guess I just don't, I'm perfectionist like that. I don't take a lower grade just because just to pass. So I actually ended up skipping 30 days, coming back, finishing it and ended up going back for my second round a couple, not even a year later. Your second round overseas? Yep. So your first tour was to Iraq. When did you go? Like, tell me the years, months, stuff like that. Uh, I landed in Kuwait September 1st of 05 because that was my brother's birthday. And I came back in February of 06. Okay. So a relatively short tour, but then you hopped right back on a bird and came back out for your second tour, what, a year later? Not even that. I was back on the plane in 07 and, or no, from 2004 to 2005, that's when I deployed. And then from 07 all the way through 09 is when I deployed my second and third because I did two back to back. So tell us a little bit about what happened when you were over. What, how did it feel? Like, what did you think was going to happen? How did it go? What actually happened? I was expecting to get shot at a lot, but uh, not as much as I was anticipating. A lot of stuff went boom, boom, even when I'm working on trucks, because I was in Fallujah, my first tour, and I actually got tasked to go down into downtown Fallujah for a couple weeks, 
which is where I got a lot of shooting at. Um, but yeah, that was, I was expecting it to be worse than it was, but like the second and third ones, everybody was always down because it was their first tour. They're new and they're all downtrodden, but it was all about the people you were with is what made the day good or bad. So I always tried to make stuff better, funny. Obviously I'm a joker. So I like to keep people joking, laughing. Yeah, just a little bit. But that's what eases the time and the tension. So, Did you feel like your, your first tour, you were more of a mechanic. Were you still turning wrenches and, and doing your actual specialty for your second and third tours? I was, I, I did everything. The only thing I wasn't doing was driving tanks and calling in airstrikes. Okay, so more of a jack of all trades. And... I, I busted down doors in Fallujah when I was down there. I uh, I ended up helping fix a Chinook that landed in Fallujah that was having issues. Um, I was on convoys as much as we could get onto a convoy. I guess I was not afraid of danger, I guess, but I being on the base i guess that's not what we do we get our hands dirty so i was always on contact teams as much as i could get on them it was more prevalent during the first one than the second and third just because i was a lance corporal and then i got promoted in iraq so then i was corporal of the guard for a month which was just the base security that i had to deal with guard towers which wasn't horrible so what happened when you came home from your first tour? What did you think that was going to be like? I guess it's different for us because like our unit was half, half active duty, half reserve. And I'm sure when you came home, you came back to the greeting from all the active duty guys that came and you're just sitting there like, where am I, where am I sleeping? tonight because I'm still not home yet Mm -hmm. but then when we came we did come home that was pretty cool I I was not expecting I don't think any of us were expecting coming home that first tour to where we were told we were supposed to wear our camis in the airports which we're not supposed to do but when we're walking through all the terminals you just saw everybody stand up start hooting and hollering, clapping, shaking her hands and stuff. That was very unexpected, I thought. Yeah. Very cool, I thought. So now, how did this... I kind of want to ask, because your dad was in Vietnam. How How is he doing this? I mean, now his son is deployed. You said your brother was, had no interest in the military. Um, and now he's coming home, and it's a totally different reaction. How did that... Did it have any impacts on you? Not as, I guess my dad was happy to see me. He He's under the impression of no news is good news. So as long as there's not a officer and a chaplain coming up to the door, he knew I was okay. Mm-hmm. And the couple times that I did call home, which my mom remembers vaguely, or not vaguely, but very specifically, because we ended up taking 
uh, incoming that time. And I'm on the phone talking to her and my dad or my mom had me on speakerphone so everybody could hear me and talk to me. And all of a sudden you hear a bang, 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 bang. And mom's like, what's that? Oh, nothing. Just, just nothing. All of a sudden you hear doom, 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 real close, real defined. And I'm like, I got to go. Hung up the phone or the phone line cut out one or the other. They cut the phone lines. I don't know. But later on, dad's like, yeah, that was incoming, the first ones, and outgoing, the second ones. Oh, my God. (laughs) That was a fun homecoming there. Like, yeah, what was that bang, bang? That was incoming. That's something you'd want to know about, Mom. Mm -hmm. I have a similar phone conversation with my mom. Mine was one incoming round and a lot of outgoing round. We had a much faster artillery than they did. Oh, yeah. It was funny because even my mom, when I came home, she said, how do you know the difference? I said, did you hear my voice quivering the second bangs? Yeah, that's because the ground was shaking, mom, from us shooting at them. <laughs> so what happened in between your tours? Your home, it's a little bit different. You go back to the reserves. Did you go back to work? Did you, you finished your last 30 days, but then what? You were actually home for more than 30 days. How, is, how did it go? I actually came back and then I went recruiter's assistance for about six months. So tell us what, what's recruiter's assistance for people who don't know. Uh, I'm basically a recruiter. That's the short and nitty gritty of it. The recruiters like us when we come back, that way we can kind of tell our war stories, I guess, and try to get more people to come join the fun and excitement in the sandbox. Okay. So you're a recruiter for six months, 30 days of school. What else did you do? I Girlfriend, party uh, a lot. No, I'm not a partier. Harass innocent Lance Corporals who just want to be normal. There's nothing normal about you. <laughs> Again, um, for anybody who has who already forgotten, Sergeant Arnsdorf and I were in the same unit and became friends and... He kind of took me under his wing as best as he could because I think I'm taller, and uh, well, a lot of a lot of shenanigans, shadow. a lot of shenanigans were brought on by us. So, um, how you keep morale up? You, hey, troop morale is like second Key. to the mission. Yes. Mm-hmm. All right. Back to the tasks at hand. Um, tell me a little bit about the second tour. How did that go? What was going on? What what was different from your second tour? And I know it, it rolls right into your third because I know a little bit about your story. How was it different from your first? Kind of walk us through that. Well, my second tour, when I went back, I went back as a sergeant because I got promoted again during my recruiter's assistance. They ended up promoting me to sergeant. And then I, when I went back, well, first of all, I volunteered to go back because I had to go up to Captain Tyson and basically beg him to get me on a another ship to go out. Okay, and Captain and Tyson that, was the officer in charge. And then when when was this? I remember you said two thousand seven, but when in two thousand seven? Um, I think this was around May, May or June. 
of 2007 is when I went to Captain Tyson because my <laughs> life was going down the drain because I just got prior to this, my, when I went back to work for UPS, I ended up with the girl that I went and deployed the first time with when I came back, we were still together, but in after the Christmas season or whatever you want to call it, um, I found out she was cheating on me. That just did not turn out very well. And a lot of, lot of drama. Oh my God. High school had nothing on this. Um, but yeah, I, I, I just had, I went down to Captain Tyson, begged him to put me on and I called him up on the phone told him I needed to talk to him ASAP came down there in my civvies. And I ended up talking to him for about two hours of what the hell was going on in my life. And he's like, yep, we're going to get you the fuck out of here. Thank you, sir. <laughs> okay, so deployment was a good way to kind of break those ties and get yeah. out of the drama, move on. Okay. So yeah. what happened over there? How did that go? My I mean, what did you expect? I mean, you, you've been deployed. So what did you expect coming in the second time? Kind of the same stuff or? I was expecting the same stuff. I mean, the way that everybody is reporting it in the news is that we were still in the same shit. And when I went back, they actually had me doing uh, rebuild work this time. So I'm like, okay, now I'm actually going to be rebuilding engines. This ought to be interesting. But going up there this time, I was actually in charge of everybody that was coming from Rock Island. And everybody was good guys and stuff. Uh, but it wasn't, it, it was not even nearly as heated as everybody in the news was talking. I mean, I'm on Takatum, which is just a monstrosity air base so they're really it was just normal to me normal day-to-day -day work go to work come back go to work come back it was kind of monotonous i guess okay so um, nowhere near the challenges drum. of the first tour you know the incoming the outgoing the the kicking the kicking indoors and contact teams just there was kind of a little bit like being home in different clothes and different weather. Yeah. And how was that? Uh, monotonous. I was expecting to be doing what I did the first tour and I was hoping to be doing that again. Cause after all the drama, I had plenty of anger issues <laughs> to let out. And but there wasn't any there. There's no. just, it's almost, no. it was almost boring. It was. And if it wasn't for, um, I can't, I, I don't even remember who was in charge of like the gyms and all the other places. What, do you remember what company those guys were? Mm -mm. They were contractors, but they were just there to maintain so, a, a gym yeah, for us. Yeah. But we, we had. The gym was the saving grace on my second tour as well. Yeah. I say that, and our battalion had a battalion-wide 
uh, MCMAP competition that I got in. Damn it. That was a good time. Did you and win the competition? Goddamn right I did. I went undefeated. Awesome. I, and Chief Warrant Officer Dressler uh, got in a betting competition with my CO, my Chief Warrant Officer, which I laughed because he bet against me. Mike, I'm your own, I'm in your platoon and you bet against me. Great. Uh, it was incentive but, to get you to, to work harder. D- right, yeah. But it was funny because I guess Chief Officer Dressler places took the bet for me and he's like, well, he's not even in your platoon. Uh, no, but he comes from the same place I come from and he's you don't bet against him. <laughs> he's like, and, and even... Uh, Chief Dressler is like, has he even lost yet? No. Has he even gotten to decision yet? No. I said he's made three of the five black belts we have in our battalion tap out, hasn't he? Yeah. Why would you bet against him? <laughs> Be careful of them. Mid- the Midwestern kids were a little scrappy. First fight I had was against our black belt, and I put him in such a tight headlock that I blew the blood vessels on the back of his neck. And two weeks later, I see him in the chow hall and he comes up to me and asks me, he's like, where the hell did you learn to put a headlock in like that? I'm like, what do you mean? And then he shows me the pictures of his neck. I'm like, Ooh, he's like, I couldn't turn my damn head for a week. I'm like, it's a good thing you tapped out when you did. He's like, why? He said, I still, I could still sink that a little tighter. (laughs) He's like, where the hell did you learn how to do that? I said, Dan Gable. He's like, who the hell's Dan Gable? Um, just Google it, Gunny. He's like, fine. Comes back. I see him again. He's like, you learned it from an Olympic gold medalist from Iowa. Yes. Bullshit. I said, do you want the real answer? He's like, Yeah. I said, I got it from chasing cows around a farm and I put them in a headlock to take them down. <laughs> I said, you're just a big cow I got to take down. It's <laughs> one way to look at it. Hope that Gunny's not listening to this and realizing you just uh, called him a cow. We're not mentioning the names. We're Good not call. mentioning names. <laughs> Good call, Dave. <laughs> so now you're on your second tour, back to your tours. What... I mean, you left girlfriend drama at home. What's going on? Because I know you roll almost directly into your third tour, but why? I did not want to go home. I had no ambition to come home. I I liked the guys that I was with. I liked what I was doing. So even though it was boring, it was a good group of guys. You could still connect with the mission at large and I had purpose there. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't have a per- It felt like I had a dead end life when I went back home. Like when I can't, when I went to Iraq, there was a reason to go. There's a purpose to go and something to fight for. And there was a purpose for everyday work too. Right. I mean, the work you were doing was keeping the, the engines running and keeping trucks moving and keeping, you know, the supply lines fed, you know, fed and rolling. Mm-hmm. That's feeding our infantry and our troops in more forward engagements and making 
everything else happen. Right. So third tour, you went direct from your second to your third because you didn't want to go home. You had a purpose. You had a good group of guys. You had consistency and value again. Obviously, you can't stay on active duty in a war zone indefinitely. They will rotate you home at some point. So now yep. we're coming home. When, what, when did you come home again? I know it was 2009, but... Yep. And March, I believe. August. Like, okay. Captain Tyson put me on active duty just to get all the guys' training and stuff done in June. And I think by August we were in Quantico, and then I think by September, September or October we were in but a California solid, again. A solid eighteen months overseas. A solid twelve for sure. Yeah. What did you expect would be different coming home? Because now you're coming home for your second tour. Girlfriend's gone. I didn't come home. I rotated to Ramadi. No, when you came home from Ramadi, That's which is your third tour. tour. Mm-hmm. Right. Not my second. I went okay. from Fallujah, my first tour, to Kadam, my second tour, then to Ramadi for my third tour. Okay. So you extended into Kadam to go to Ramadi. Right. Okay. So same group of guys? No. So now you're in Ramadi. You've got a whole new group of guys, but you still haven't gone home. Right. How is that different? Uh, considering I was one of two guys in the motor T section and the rest of them were heavy equipment operators, very stressful. So <laughs> a lot more work. Day, oh yeah. And then I did, I wasn't a re, in rebuild anymore. I was just in a regular maintenance shop. Um, but I ended up my first day there changing with the guys. I ended up finding out I had about 200 trucks that were down intentionally, not in, unintentionally, but they were purposely foobarred. So they, the other guys getting ready to rotate didn't have to go out and basically risk their lives. So they downed all their trucks. So I spent three days with a handful of guys about eight, I had eight mechanics and two, three of us were actually, that was our MOS. Okay. So you've got three trained I, wrench turners and a few guys who can kind of fake the funk and they've got 200 no, they trucks down. Oh. I said kind of, but they've got no, 200 they trucks down. They're already mechanics. No, they couldn't fake the wrench turning. So how did that I mean, how did you deal with that? Like, how did you, like, how do you even mentally cope with the fact that it's like you guys downed your own gear so that you didn't have to go on convoys? Initially, I was pissed, <laughs> but I do see it from their standpoint. Cause at that time, on my third tour, Ramadi was a big hotspot because they were getting ready for elections and they're, trying to put up all these barriers in the town and just that place sucked. And it was half the size of uh, our Fallujah base that we had. So we were all kind of cramped in there, just 
trying to get 250 trucks salvageable so the guys that are replacing them have something to drive and can do patrols that was so long long days fried oh no i was up for three days i did not go i didn't get a chance to go to sleep i was pulling engines pulling trainees draining uh jp8 that smelled like fruit punch and cherry kool-aid because they filled it with sugar so tell me a little bit about how that had an effect on you knowing that now you extended and you're in this mess now of trying to repair all of these damages with very little help or assistance and get it done as fast as humanly possible so that the guys can get back on the road to do the patrols. I mean, it takes a toll on you mentally, but what did that feel like? Well, it was definitely a challenge. I ended up having a truck that I would be working on by myself and I would have two of the inexperienced guys on both sides of me and I'm teaching them what to do, how to do it. And I guess it kept me focused in my mind on what I needed to do. Um, but yeah, that was definitely a stressful couple of weeks getting those trucks done. I ended up having to, get a hold of the supply guy in Takatum where I just came from. And just because I knew him, I told him that we're sending trucks to go pick up every Hummer engine, every Hummer transmission he has. And I, in a couple of days, I had two semi-trailers full of engines and transmissions. And they all went into these trucks because they were just that bad. So let's talk about coming home then. From your now third tour, you'd come home once, wore your camis in an airport, which the Marine Corps never does. What'd you expect this time coming home? You'd been gone a lot longer. Kind of the same thing. Only, I guess... This time, you didn't get, there was, you get everybody that says thank you for your service and thank you, I guess. But it's not that, I don't know. Everybody says that we are, every, we're all heroes, but I, I still have yet to feel like a hero, I guess. I'm not going to say it's completely different because you, you know who the sincere people are and half the time they're actually veterans that say thank you for your service. Because mm-hmm. a lot of the Vietnam guys, Never got what we got. Right. There's a different tone in how they say it. Right. There's a different tone. That just you can tell in the, the way they look at you mm-hmm. that they actually mean it. When, like when I came home, it was kind of the same way I came home the first time. Yeah, you came home with a big group from the first Marines in California, but then you're kind of like pushed out of the side because this no one's here for you and you know it which is kind of a shitty feeling mm-hmm. and a couple of days later they send you on another airplane to go back to rock island and i will admit the the freedom riders that was actually very unexpected and very cool i thought 
when they, they they always come on their bikes and they're always there rain snow shine they're they're always there for anybody that they find out that's coming home mm-hmm. uh, but i also gave my family a heads up this time <clears throat> uh, where i was coming in at and apparently our company had no idea that i was coming yet so i'm in texas calling them from the airport telling them when i'm coming in and they're like you're not supposed to come in for another two days well i'm coming in in about mm, four hours so what happened when you got home like how is it how did it go what did you do how did you how did you deal with coming home well first coming off the plane just with the freedom riders that was cool and i also knew ahead of time from my family who was going to be there so the pilots the pilot wanted me to get off the airplane first i'm like no no i'm gonna be last well you should go off first i'm gonna be last i know what's out there which my uh found out later the tsa almost arrested my cousin at the airport yeah that was interesting and it was kind of interesting well not interesting it was hilarious because my mom could not see me and everybody on the airplane when they were coming off just saw this little brown streak which was my cousin running at me because she saw me in the terminal so she passed everybody and almost it was like a running back going through the line it was just hilarious she jumped on me well here my mom went and hugged my was about to hug my cousin because she couldn't see out of her glasses because they're all fogged up from her crying. So that was pretty funny. I thought I started laughing. So what'd you do for work? Did you go back to UPS? Yes, I did go back to UPS and, but I didn't go back right away because I went, I think I went on rec aid again. I went on recruiter's assistance. Mm-hmm. Right for another couple months and then I came back to the unit. Okay, so you get out of the Marine Corps. Now what? What's going on? Fill us in. What are you doing for work? What's how's your personal life? And we know we left the drama girl between the two sets of tours. Well when I was in Iraq, my le- when I was my third tour, I ended up getting a letter. Uh, one of those support your troops. I, I, I guess you can, I don't know where you found them, but she found it. She found my name, wrote me a Christmas card or something. And me and her just started chatting because apparently I was the only one that wrote back. Uh, but I ended up talking with her quite a bit. Came home because of her. And, uh, yeah, a couple of years later, I married her, had two kids, got divorced. <laughs> and that kind of puts in the, the perspective of the, puts it in the a bad, damper. Yeah, a little dampener on the love story there for for that, for Valentine's Day. <laughs> um, what were you doing it during this time? I mean, obviously, you'd, you had somebody you were dating now. You get married, you have kids. How was work? Well, it's working at UPS. It's 
kind of like being in the Marines only instead of filling sandbags, you're filling, you're filling up trucks and semis with boxes for three and a half to five hours a day. How are you mentally handling it? I actually pushed everything out. Like I didn't have any issues coming home until I got divorced. And that's when like my PTSD kicked in and it kicked in at the worst damn time, which it never is a good time. But while I was going through my divorce, uh, I ended up having such bad depression and PTSD. I ended up dropping about 40 pounds in a month. Couldn't smell. If I smelled or hear or heard uh, like meat sizzling on a grill, Mm-hmm. E- even the Matt Damon beef is what's for dinner commercial. I had to change the channel. I couldn't see it. I couldn't even drive by a McDonald's or a Burger King because I just wanted to heave every time I smelled it. So it was yeah. really intense and really hard. Yeah. I, I didn't, I literally did not eat a single piece of meat for over a month mm-hmm. because I just could not stand the smell the sight. I couldn't go down the grocery aisle of the meat department. and uh, So it anything. just became a, a major trigger. Right. So now how did you deal with that? How did you, how did you overcome those now significant, you know, hurdles that are appearing in your life when you're not eating, you weren't sleeping? Well, from all the classes that we had before deployments and then after deployments, Obviously, I knew there was something wrong, and I needed I needed some serious help. And I went to the VA. The problem is with my schedule, it was just you couldn't get you couldn't get help when you needed it or when I needed it just because of my work schedule. Mm-hmm. Um, but the VA did give me a another lifeline for they're actually done Moline. Um, the, not, it's not veterans affairs, but it's another kind of off branch of the VA, but every one of them in there, they, they strictly deal with veterans only and therapy of all kinds. And First time I went down, I didn't even go down there the first time. I just talked to a guy and I ended up, me and him were clicking back and forth. And he told me, he's like, all right, get your ass down here. We're going to have a talk. Sit down. How far, how far of a drive is it? It was, it's an hour from my house to uh, Moline. It's about 70 miles. Yeah. But I would go, I ended up going down there the first time, talked to him. And he was an army vet. He was in Desert Storm. And he he had PTSD. And I just went in and just spilled my guts for an hour. Just, there, I don't know if I held anything back. But uh, I ended up getting hit in the back of the head by a Marine Corps Bible. And you know how thick that book is. And he's like, all right, now that we've gotten all that shit out of you, now we're going to start rebuilding you. Okay. And I went to him twice, a couple times a month, two, three times a month. 
and um, I got it worked out with my job because even at UPS, I just got started driving. So I'm still pretty low on the totem pole, but even my bosses could see the change in me. Mm-hmm. And considering when I told them, I said, I need new pants and new shirts and new everything because these don't fit me and I could fit another human inside these. He's like, all right. So they pulled me up in the office, asked me what the hell's going on. And that's when I spilled my guts with them about my uh, divorce and the problems with me eating at the moment. Because my only source of basic consumption was uh, peanuts for protein. And one of my other buddies was, was in my, he was my roommate in the first tour was Meyer. He uh, told me to start drinking Ensure because that has a bunch of your vitamins and minerals and stuff. I think it was Ensure. So, it was something like that, Ensure. Tell me a little bit about how it felt to know you needed help going through it and kind of, I mean, it's always an ongoing process. I kind of feel that when we come home, every day is a fight and it will never, I don't know that it'll ever not be a fight. Some days are definitely easier than others, but there comes a point where you kind of turn a corner and it's not, Oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I'm not going to survive this fight. It's, I can take a breath, I can regroup, and I can reattack. I mean, it's just, let me attack in this direction now. Like, we get a little bit more of our bearings, we get our feet back underneath of us. How did it feel when you turned that corner? It was like one of those, like, enlightening moments, I guess. Because when I first went to the VA... I was not on any antidepressants. I was not on any kind of pill, but that's when my counselor ended up telling me, he's like, you should try this. Mm-hmm. And I told him, I said, I don't like taking pills. I would rather not take pills. He's like, but you're not getting ahead. And he, like, for 45 minutes, he was explaining to me, that I'm I'm kind of treading water. He's like, your head is just above the water. This can help you get your head above the water. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, but how long do I need to stay on it until you get the fuck out of the water? Okay, when's that gonna be? He's like, that's up to you. I'm like, great. That doesn't. That's not con- That's not confidence, buddy. Mm-hmm. He's like, I got faith in you. We have made some huge strides in the last three months. Mm-hmm. He's like, you're eating again. You're, you're gaining weight again. I'm like, true. He's like, but you need a little more help than just me and you talk. Mm-hmm. He's like, you need to not have your way up highs and then you're crashing through the floor of lows. And I'm like, okay. He's like, this will help you level the playing field so you don't fall through the floor. So you don't bottom out. Uh, but he got me on that. I had to go back to the VA to see their counselor in order to get any kind of meds. But like I told him, I said, my, well, I'm going to get off this. He's like, you can get off it. That's up to you too, though. I said, okay, well, I'm not 
going to stay on this for my entire life because that's just not me and I'm not going to do that. But after, after about a year, I finally got off it. So that was kind of like my enlightening, I'm winning moment Mm -hmm. that this isn't going to be the end of me or this isn't kicking my ass anymore. Yeah. Now I'm kicking his, now I'm kicking this thing's ass. Well, and I think it, also helped you find a different reason to continue on, you know, to not give in to the fight. And that was my kids. That was my grounding. Mm-hmm. I, I know for a fact if, it, if I didn't have my kids, then I wouldn't, I probably wouldn't be here right now. But that's, that was my joys, my happy right there. Mm-hmm. And when my ex had them, that was my lows of lows, which is when some of my friends would come over and hang out with me and do shit with me and keep me. Kind of, it takes a, it takes a village, but it kind of held you. They kind of held you together until you. Right. Right. Humpty Dumpty was getting put back together. Mm-hmm. Well, right. healing takes a, it, it takes a village. I mean, it oh, really yeah. does. So now the duct tape. It, duct tape and chicken wire works too. So tell us where you're at now. How are things now? Uh, well, about a year ago, it was pretty rough because as I'm kind of like, I've got a good grasp. I had a good grasp of my issues, my triggers, my problems, my little quirks to get over the shit. I was off my meds. I didn't have them anymore. I didn't need them. So I was in a good spot. And then my dad, which was, he was in Vietnam. He ended up getting, having just out of the clear blue sky. uh, He started having PTSD. He started having nightmares and night terrors and flashbacks. And he, he, we we called it the garage therapy because I would, he would come over to my house and we would bullshit and talk and he would reminisce and tell me other stories. Cause now that my mom and my dad knew my stories. Now my dad had a little trigger to open up. Um, Cause he knew the kind of shit that I went through. Mm-hmm. And my dad's Navy. So me and him, we'd always go back and forth like, Oh yeah, you don't want, I'm Navy, you're Marines, we always had to carry you in on the ship, make sure you didn't have your feet wet, and park you up on the sand. I'm like, Dad, you were never in Vietnam. You do realize this, right? Well, what's that got to do with anything? Dad, you were never in Vietnam. The closest thing you got to Vietnam was Japan, or 25 to 50 miles offshore on an aircraft carrier where nothing was going to touch you because you had, like, 20 boats around you and subs protecting your ass. I said, so no, my, my dad, I was there. I booted doors in. I've been blown up. I've been shot at. I've been rocketed. I had RPGs go through my vehicle. I shit my pants. You didn't. <laughs> Don't disqualify a service. No, but that's how me and him bickered about okay. Marines versus the Navy. But he ended up uh, having just traumatic 
nightmares where even in the middle of the night my mom would call me and have to I'd she would have to just vent to me mm-hmm. for what my dad's doing because she was just terrified to even try to wake him up. I said, don't, don't go near him. Don't even touch him. Mm-hmm. Cause you don't know where he's at. You don't know what he's doing in that dream. Mm-hmm. Leave him be. You don't go near him. But we ended up having some uh, counseling issues, counseling garage therapy in my garage couple nights and i told him i said dad you get ptsd well why now my dad there is no now or here it's whenever it wants to show its goddamn face but this is stupid i never had this problem for 30 years 40 years like i never had problems until i got divorced dad yeah but you did this and this i said yeah what did you do that's giving you nightmares that's not letting you sleep at night. That you're waking up in cold sweats. I said, what the fuck is it? Well, I ended up getting him. So I finally got him talked into going to see a counselor. And he didn't like that one. I said, then go try a different one. Well, well they're just going to give me another one. I'm like, okay, well. I can tell you who I went to and you can go see him. Well, is he one of these damn college kids that don't know anything about the military? No, he's actually a vet dad. He was in Desert Storm. Me and him have a lot of the same experiences. Mm-hmm. But he never did go to him, but he did find a counselor he liked. He did start getting treatment and then it just, he he couldn't sleep. And that's what really was the downfall for him is that he couldn't get any sleep. And I said, dad, you got to try to sleep. If you don't sleep, this is when this is, it's going to be even worse during the day. Cause it, in the middle of the day, he would have flashbacks mm-hmm. just out of nowhere. Um, Cause he took my niece and nephew to a place called the house on the rock, but they have the, they have a little, uh, I guess figurine, like a scale model of an aircraft carrier. And I had an F4 Phantom on it. Mm-hmm. And my dad just started crying, he told me. And he's like, I don't, I don't get it. And I guess my niece went up to him and grabbed his hand. And he kind of flinched. And they were asking why he's crying. And he's, and of course he had to lie to him. He's like, Oh no, these are happy tears. Cause I'm happy to be here with you guys. And we're having a good time bonding. And, um, but that's when he told me and he's like, I don't know why I was crying right then. I said, dad, you were in an aircraft carrier. F4 phantoms were your plane in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. I said, there's plenty of shit that I'm sure you've seen on it, but he still wouldn't, he still didn't open up to me. And then he ended up going to another VA hospital in Toma. But this, no, he was committed first in Iowa City. And the doctor down there actually did commit him. And he was there for a couple months. And that night that he was committed, uh, that was a stressful night for me because I pulled my brother and my mother in. And I started having this 
discussion about PTSD and what it is and how it works and how it manifests. And my brother is one of those bullheaded beep beep. And he just could not get it. He can't, he could not wrap his head around something. He could not see, he could not prove is not, not in, in his hand. And I'm just drilling this into his head. I'm like, this is something you can't help him with. And what makes you the expert? And I was just turned red, my mom told me. And I'm like, because I have gone through this shit. So now that that's out of the way, start learning that not everything that you can see, touch, feel is not real. I said, because my flashbacks, I can smell everything. I could see sometimes in my dreams, like when I'd be dreaming about it, I would be right there. I would be kicking in my bed thinking I'm running. Mm-hmm. But we ended up getting him out. And that's when I went up to Toma to visit him because he wouldn't see anybody else from my family but me or his best friend. Um, but we went up there and that's when he kind of left these little breadcrumbs of information and I could start piecing a puzzle together of what experiences he was actually part of. And then I saw him again, I went up and visited him and that's when I started telling him his own story. Mm -hmm. And he's like, I never told you that. I said, no, I know you didn't, but this is what happened, isn't it? How'd you know? Because you drop hints, dad. And I'm picking him up. Mm-hmm. So, so I was through piecing. your healing, you were able to help him. Right. How did I got him. Uh, kind of like a gold star moment. Like, wow, I can actually, through my suffering, can help ease another's. Well, you went through it. I mean, it doesn't mean that your path that you traversed will work. Obviously, he never went to your counselor. He you know, he didn't go through the exact same steps you went through, but, you know, your path can parallel another person's to give them guidance. Right. And that's, that's really what cool. kind of kind of made me feel good. It's like, wow, I can actually, you know, help take care of my dad because of the experiences he experienced in Vietnam. Like, not even the, my entire family still has no idea what what he's experiencing but me Mm -hmm. and they keep asking me and i'm like nope that's his story not mine i'm like you guys want to know you go and ask him if he decides to tell you he'll tell you don't push the subject don't do this don't do that so going forward you've turned that corner doing a lot better i mean obviously it's like we've said it before it's there's good days there's bad days but you've, you've got your feet underneath of you again. Mm-hmm. And now you know that through the struggle that you have weathered, you can help other people. Right. What lies, what lies ahead for you? Wherever this green road takes us, I guess. I don't know. Hopefully to a happy grazing ground. <laughs> the happy grazing ground. As long as you don't say the happy hunting ground, because that'd be awkward. Well, we'll all meet in Valhalla for a beer and shit. All right. 
I'm going to wrap it up. So thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Uh, thank you all for listening to Sergeant Arnsdorf's story. It's been an absolute pleasure for Stigma Free Vet Zone. My name is Erin Schroffnagel. And on behalf of my co-hosts, uh, Bob Bach and Mike Orban, I want to appreciate you all listening. This episode was made possible in part by a donation from the Charles E. Kubley Foundation. And I want to send a shout out to our tech and sound team for all of their editing and hard work that they provide for us for every episode to make this happen. So thank you all. And it's been a pleasure. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Your feedback is always welcomed and encouraged. You'll find contact information on our webpage, OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. Donations help us continue to bring greater hope, understanding, resolution, and togetherness on issues of civilian readjustment for all military veterans and families. Please consider donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. As a thank you, you'll receive a free copy of the book Sold Out, Conquering the Experiences of War by Michael Orban. Receive your free copy by donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. On behalf of Michael Orban, this is Bob Bach. Thanks for joining us and please tune in again.